Bow your heads in prayer, please. Heavenly Father, truly all your works are marvelous, Father. Father, we behold the things in the earth and there's such beauty to be found, Father. But Lord, we want to leave that behind right now, Father. We want to come into your throne room. And we can, Father, by the blood of your Son. We can enter into your presence, Father, as your people, beloved. And Father, there are many cares and concerns in life. But Lord, you promised that blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, Father. We come to you, Lord, because you're the one who fulfills all of our needs, Father. We can have a life and have it abundantly with you, Lord, in the midst of our loss and our sorrow and our pain and growing old, Lord. So, Lord, we come to you. And, Father, we remember your loving kindness, Father. And not just what you've shown us in the past, Lord, but you're showing us now and today. Father, we lift the children up to you, Father, that they would come to fear your word and come to know you, Lord, in the beauty of your holiness. Father, remember those who serve you in distant lands, who've answered your call, Father, who've obeyed your call, Father, and they're being persecuted and their very lives are in danger. Lord, we lift them up to you. Father, for your peace and your joy. Father, we remember your word also, of course, Father. We remember your word because he's the one who delivers us from our own suffering and pain and sorrow, Father. Our own sin. So we lift up your messenger now, Father. We ask that you strengthen him in his weakness. That he would bring your word with power and with joy, Father. That the whole earth would come to know you, Father. Father, these things are too great and wonderful for us. But it's because it's from you, Lord, that we love you and we thank you. And we give you all the praise and the glory because you're the only true and faithful God. There's no other God like you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Everything's on on my side. So it wasn't my fault. Um, these miracles we talked through ever since we started this preaching through this gospel are, are spiritual lessons for us. You get that? They're just not outward signs of something that Jesus does in somebody's life, but there are spiritual mes- messages here. There are spiritual lessons for us, and we probably see it more clearly in this chapter 9 than anywhere else there are only seven miracles in um, in the gospel seven miracles of Jesus in the gospel of John we had the, we went through the changing of water into wine and then the healing of the nobleman's son and then the curing of the invalid man by the pool of Bethesda and the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water and now the sixth one 
restoring sight to the blind, and then we'll see raising of Lazarus in a couple of chapters. John could have included many, many more of these miracles of Jesus, but he only included seven as he wrote out this gospel inspired by the Spirit. But he does it, he does it these are chose, chosen specifically as spiritual lessons so that, what? We might believe, we might come to faith. He tells us that in chapter 20, verse 31, which we share with you just about every message. But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's why he wrote these things down. That's why we have these seven miracles. They're lessons for us. And in John's mind, these seven miracles are particularly significant. They, they reflect the spiritual truths that God is teaching through this book, this gospel. And so last week we began with the first seven verses. So we, we saw the disciples question to Jesus and we saw Jesus answer and then we saw the miracle itself. <clears throat> and uh, so let me read through those verses because this, this entire chapter is this one event. And so it's important that we get the whole picture every week. As he passed by... He saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So Jesus passes by. His disciples have a theological question. They don't really care that the man's blind, it seems like. They just want an answer to their theological question. Jesus came by. He said in verse 4, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. And so we see Jesus came by. Then Jesus came to work the works of God. He improves upon that. And in verse 5, As long as I am, in, I am in the world, I'm the light of the world. So Jesus came to be the light of the world. He came to do the works of God and came to be the light of the world. And having said these things, he spat on the ground. He made mud with his saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. And Jesus came to give sight to blind. A lot of reasons Jesus came. People have asked about the mud. A lot of times we wonder about the manner of the miracle instead of the miracle itself. The healing power is the same in all of all of the healings of Jesus we see takes place, but his methods of healing are different. One of the reasons I think that's true, because a couple of you asked me about spitting mud this week after last week's sermon. One of the reasons I think uh, it's, it's true that it changed, although saliva is some historical issue and he's used it before, 
Um, <clears throat> but that, what, if, what would have happened if Jesus had healed every single blind man the same way? Well, we would have had a Sunday school class on making mud with your saliva this morning. Everybody would be trying to do it Jesus' way so that people would be healed. Those of us who have been to seminary would have taken the seminary class on making mud with our spit. And, but the method was always varied. And yet the power that heals these people is always the same. It's the power of God. And Jesus is just displaying who he really is to these people he encounters He knows the truth in this particular case with this man. The truth is, the darker the situation, the greater opportunity for the light to make impact. You get that? The darker the situation, the greater the opportunity for the light to make impact. And how dark was it? It's funny, I was giving a witness to a couple of people back here at Pace School. If you're not aware, we house a... Uh, charter school for multiple needs children. Most of these children can't feed themselves. In fact, most of them can't swallow, so they have to be fed by a tube, and and, uh, they just have multiple needs. And we encounter them and see them and play with them every single day. (laughs) But as I was reading this story last week, I, I realized how important it was for some of those workers back there to realize when Jesus said, we must work the works of him who sent me, that any time your hands show mercy to somebody else, you might not be able to heal a blind man. But any time your hands show mercy to somebody else, you're doing the work of God. In fact, I said to him, you might not even believe in God. Your hands are doing works of mercy. You're doing the work of God. It's important to know that. And then another principal of the school, Steve Kiernan back there, told me, he said, you know, I remember when I was living in Manhattan, New York, uh, going to school, and some of us would walk down the same street every single day to go to lunch. And there was always this beggar on the corner in a wheelchair. And not only was he blind, but we realized not too long that He was born without eyeballs. I thought to myself, what if that was the case here? (laughs) What if Jesus produced eyeballs in this miracle too? Well, I don't know. We're not told. But all we know is he was blind. God can do anything. Wouldn't that be wonderful? They have this hopeless and humiliating situation. He's hopeless. He's sitting on the, wherever he's sitting, begging. Then you have these disciples with this humiliating question. They ask Jesus. They, they don't really show any care. They just want to know, okay, what's the theological answer? This man's sin or his parents, if he sinned and he was born blind, that means he sinned in the womb. It's strange, but there is some basis for asking those particular questions. And how Jesus viewed this person was much different than how the disciples viewed him. We tend to see people with problems as interruptions, don't we? 
we seem to we tend to see people with who have issues as problems. Wouldn't it be great if we could just look at people and see that there's a need to be met? And so Jesus does that, and there's no better time for us to focus on that in World Hunger Sunday. It's not only a, a physical act of mercy in healing a blind man or feeding a child. There are spiritual implications here as well. Today's text, we'll see this man encountering. There'll be two different encounters here. There, there are three overall, but we'll just see two today as we move from verse 8 to verse 23. The neighbors, those who had seen him before as a beggar, were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he's like him. He kept saying, I am the man. I say that and my wife just kind of sucks her teeth, you know. But <laughs> So they said to him, <clears throat> then how were your eyes open? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud, anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and watch. This is Siloam, by the way. Um, our best we can tell us alone there is an inscription that has been discovered in the excavation when this was discovered and suggested that this was the pool of Siloam where he was healed so I went and washed and received my sight they said to him where is he he said I do not know they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Oh, no, we've got to do that again. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? There was division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked him, is this your son who you say was born blind, how then does he now see? And his parents said, we know that this is our son. Well, that was good. That was complimentary. And that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. Now, these are not model parents. Passing the buck. Ask him. He is of age. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews for the Jews. This is just a parenthetic note by John, the writer. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age. Ask him. 
we have these two encounters. The encounter with the neighbors, whatever neighbors means, people that knew him quite possibly. Um, and then the encounter with the Pharisees. And the, the encounter with the Pharisees, there are two rounds to that. They, they deal with the man himself and then they deal with his parents. We'll try to look at that today. It's funny how we see throughout this, though, the natural reaction to miracles, the miracles of Jesus, fall very short of worship and praise, don't they? And that's what we see here. First, there's some confusion in the mystery of human understanding. Some people being not so far from the truth and other people being very far from the truth. We, we, hear, we see here that some people are inclined to believe. See, there's a division even with the neighbors. Some are inclined to believe the supernatural event has taken place. And some are adamant in their own natural sinful explanation that it, was, it didn't take place. And it's funny that whenever the work of Jesus is involved, there's always division in there. A blind man, man blind from birth, is not likely to be able to support himself by any other means than begging. His neighbors had to be used to the sight of seeing him beg. Um, the sight of doing whatever he did on the street corner so that he could buy a meal that day. So they're flabbergasted to see, hey, look here, Joe the blind man, is he can see now. <laughs> There's this conversation going on. Well, it might be him. Maybe it's just somebody who looks like him that can see now. You never know. So John summarizes this conversation and their ignorant opinion of this matter. And it's all cut short by the man when they're going back and forth yes he is no he's not yes he is no he's not I am the man I'm the one you're talking about so some say yes there's a tendency for belief you know when there's a genuine work of grace has taken place in somebody's life you see it don't you You can't hide it from your neighbors. You can't hide it from your acquaintances. When a work of grace has happened in somebody's life, you see it. If somebody says they were saved yesterday and today they're not any different than they were the day before, then that you can raise a question. When I was in high school, you've heard my testimony before. Well, back when I was nine years old, my dad shared the gospel with me. We prayed. We walked down the aisle. We joined the church, did all those things. Then I raised hell for the next eight years. And yet God did a work in my life <clears throat> by his spirit toward the end of my junior year in high school. I had a different set of friends that year. 
It was the party crowd. The party crowd got me elected president of the senior class. So that summer, God does this work in my life and changes my life. And I come back, the partying president of the senior class, I'm a different person. I'm not the partying guy anymore. Those of you who know me know I'm really a party guy. But, <laughs> but I was a different person. I lost all my friends. I had opportunities to, work, to witness and... Then we went to grad school and, and came back 21 years later and run into some of those people that I did those things with, had more opportunities to witness and grateful for that. But when, when, when the work of grace happens in somebody's life, they are changed. I hope you're a testimony to that. So some, some tend to say yes with some element of belief. And then there's some who say no. There's this tendency for unbelief. Talk among themselves and there's a great deal of curiosity, speculation. What happened? You know, they maybe they traded him in for somebody that looks like him and then could see. They're skeptical. People are skeptical of miracles. Can't deny a radical change is taking place and they just choose not to come up with any explanation as to how it took place. They don't know that a heart has been changed because God is now living in that heart. So when you're when, when God saves you and your friends question what happened to you, well they don't they don't they don't know. They have to come up with something. They don't know that God has changed you because God is living in your heart now. Even the unbelieving world has to recognize and indirectly acknowledge that regeneration is a real thing. You just can't explain it. A.W. Pink talks about what your friends see in a changed life. They will see that it is not with thee as it used to be, that a real change has passed upon thee, that the tempers and lusts, habits and influences which once ruled thee uh, despotic power now rule thee no longer, that though evil may occasionally break out, it does not habitually bear sway, that though it dwells within, it does not reign, though it plagues it does not govern. Now, don't go jump into confessing that, you know, if I'd have been there 2,000 years ago, I would have believed right away that Jesus had given this guy his sight. 2,000 years ago in a world of primitive medicine, that there would have been some instant belief in your own life. And these people, they're just pagans. They don't know what they're doing. We're all naturally skeptical. We're all naturally doubtful. We're all naturally suspicious. And there's nothing wrong with being cautious. There's nothing wrong with weighing the circumstances of a given miracle so we won't be taken in by false teachers. It's important to judge. The evidence to believe is one thing. The will to believe is another thing. If somebody doesn't want to believe, and there's no telling what sort of twisted explanation they could come up with, 
about how this guy was healed. If you just presuppose that this miracle couldn't come from Jesus, then you have to come up with an explanation. That Jesus, maybe Jesus himself fabricated some wild scheme. Man, there's some deceitful plot here. And Jesus found a man who looked like the man born blind, except that he had normal sight. And so he recruited him just to fool everybody. Pharisees, we get to in a minute, they, they could go to those lengths. But then he keeps saying, I am the man. We see his first confession here. There's several confessions here. We see the first one. And how are your eyes? I mean, he said, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam, wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. Pretty succinct. Didn't go into a whole lot of detail. The, the neighbors want to know what happened. I hope when God changes your life, your neighbors want to know what happened. You'll have an opportunity to tell them. And he, he, he summarizes what took place. This guy, this guy seems to be kind of quick-witted and sharp. He's not like the, the, the um, invalid man who was healed in chapter 5. He, um, he, in fact, it seems that he, gets a, he might even, in a couple of verses, get a little sarcastic toward the religious leaders about the facts of what took place in his life. These personalities between the, the between the man in chapter five and the and the man in chapter nine, they're different personalities of people Jesus healed, and it does show us that there are differences in people that Jesus ministered to. But the the immediate you notice here even the the immediate question of the mechanics of the miracle. But they're looking at him, and he's looking at them. How about that? He looks at his questioners, and he communicates with his eyes for the very first time in his life. How awesome is that? He doesn't have this just vacant stare with his eyes closed as somebody talks to him. No, he's actually looking at them. Talking to them. There's engagement. There's an attraction as they look at each other. You can't fake that. His life, he's come out of a life of darkness. And light has entered into his life. So in verse 10, they say, How are you healed? And um, we see that question being asked in four different times in this chapter, even at the beginning of this chapter. And this whole process from here on just looks kind of official. We know there's a maneuver on the part of of the religious leaders, at least. Pharisees want to get rid of the evidence, don't they? The people are afraid to speak the truth. They have that basic explanation. This man, Jesus, note that this man 
called Jesus, he did what he says he did. It's important that the person who gave him light, the person who gave him sight, is the man called Jesus. At that point, the man knew very little about Jesus. He didn't know anything more than his name here um, and that he healed him. And we're not even sure how he knew his name. It could be by reputation. Jesus' name had gotten around Jerusalem after the Feast of Tabernacles. The word was out. So it could be he got by reputation. Or it could be when Jesus walked up to him, he introduced himself to you. Hey, I'm Jesus. I'm going to spit on some dirt and put it on your eyes. How do you like that idea? Well, you know, I've had a lot of quack doctors. Might as well try your way. And so he goes. Jesus heals him. But, but he, knew the man, he, he knew the name of the man. He now has his sight, but he hadn't seen him yet. We won't see that for a while. And we see the first of three confessions by this healed man there in verse 11, describing what he knows. This is what I know. He's pretty sharp, and his ongoing dispute will reveal some discovery in his life. And I want you to make note of that at this point. There's some progression in his understanding. See, we'll see from today the man called Jesus all of a sudden, a few verses later, becomes the prophet. And next time, when we go through the rest of this chapter, we'll see an entire progression of how God saves a soul. It's beautiful. It's just beautiful. But at this point, we just see a couple of steps. He doesn't know who he is. Jesus calls him to himself. All of a sudden, he knows, well, that's the man called Jesus. And a few verses later, he's a prophet. It's this progression in his understanding. Light continually gets brighter and brighter and brighter as he goes through this process and then eventually meets Jesus himself. And it's funny, as we see through this chapter, that, that the, the light gets brighter spiritually for this man, but the hatred and the darkness gets worse for those who don't believe. And so they ask him in verse 12, where is he? He said, I do not know. That just had to be the strangest feeling he could ever have in his life up to this point. Where did he go? Hey, nobody's ever asked me that question before. I was blind. Nobody asked me, how do I get here? Where do I go? Somebody's saying, where did he go? I don't know where he went. I've never given directions before. That would be a strange feeling. It could be a form of intimidation, too. Why should he go... If he's performed such a wonderful miracle, we'd like to question him. And so we see this process of Jesus coming to the man, calling him to himself, withdrawing from the man without any notice. And, and then much later in this chapter, he finds the man and personally addresses him. And without that 
without that series of events in the life of this man, he is lost for an eternity in hell, whether you can see or not. Then we see the encounter with the Pharisees. Okay, deals with the neighbors. The neighbors bring him to the Pharisees. I don't think there's any malicious intent here. Um, Religion is controversial, and it particularly was controversial then in those days because every, every, every issue in life in Jerusalem had some religious connotation. And you know, in your discussion of Christianity with other people, it results in arguments sometimes and conflict and disagreements and division. The, 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 the most important distinction is that those conflicts um, should only take place outside of the church. Inside the church, we're on the same page together for the gospel. A discussion between the truth of Jesus and those outside of God's family takes place. And we see three rounds. We'll look at two today. People cannot tolerate the true person of Jesus Christ and his saving work and people who can. There's a different strategy we see in each encounter. We'll look at the third round next week. Now... It's almost like a legal testimony. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been formerly blind. Now, it was Sabbath day when Jesus made mud and opened his eyes. Well, I've been through that before. Like I said, there's no need to assume nastiness on the part of these neighbors. They just wanted some opinion. It's kind of like something catastrophic happens in in our country or somewhere else, you know, on the news is say we're waiting to hear a report from the president's office or we're waiting to hear a report from the State Department. Well, they wanted to this something amazing happened and these neighbors wanted to get a report from the Pharisees. That's what takes place here. And then they have an opportunity to grill this man. And it shouldn't surprise us one bit. The first line of attack is what? He did it on the Sabbath. It's happened before, three or four or five other places, and it's going to happen again. Here John reveals that these people with these perverted sense of priorities of absorbed in Judaism of their time. He talks about the Sabbath. And he reminds them, as we see in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, Jesus is talking to a scribe, I believe, at this point. He said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And the Jews of the day had perverted the Sabbath with all these different rules, not the law that God had laid down through Moses, but they had perverted with adding more and more rules as to what could, more and more legalism with regard to the Sabbath. And so it was easy to catch somebody in, in um, uh, perverting the Sabbath. But see, the same thing happened here that happened in the very first couple of verses, and that is theology 
is more important than a man can now see. Theology is still more important than the healing of a blind man. Theology is more important than this man's life is changed. We saw that with Jesus' disciples in verse 2. He's an object of speculation. There's no interest in the joy he may be experiencing from being able to see now. There's no rejoicing with this man because of what Christ has done for him. Seems to be no question that he was healed at this by this time. Jesus is not afraid to confront this heartless religion head on. And eventually he does say, we read in Luke 6, verse 5, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So they say in verse 14, now it was Sabbath day and Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees asked him again how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. So that's the second testimony. Of what takes place in verse 16, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? So just like the neighbors who had the people who would believe and those who might not believe, you have with the with the Pharisees, those who are favorable toward what's taking place and those who are unfavorable toward what's taking place. This Man is not of God. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. A good work has been done to a helpless man. A huge physical infirmity has been removed. A mighty act of mercy has been performed in the life of this man. But the blind-hearted enemies of Jesus Christ could see no beauty in the act of him being healed. Imagine that. A sin against the fourth commandment. And these Pharisees completely mistook the intention of the Sabbath. It was for man. The Sabbath is for man's body. The Sabbath is for man's mind. The, the Sabbath is for man's soul. It was a day for, to, to, to be set apart from other days. It was a day that was to be kept holy. The Sabbath is for man. We may presume that the Pharisees, like the neighbors, could testify to having seen this man. You know, they saw him regularly on the street, walking by, maybe even daily. Some of these Pharisees at least knew who he was and saw him. There's no suggestion here that he's an imposter anymore, though it may have crossed their minds. And so their questioning doesn't concern the man and his healing so much as... How he was healed or they don't even ask who. It's illegal. You can't heal people on the Sabbath. And I was thinking, bless you, that this crowd, these Pharisees, we're getting closer to the cross. And this rift with the Pharisees, these Pharisees are disagreeing with each other now. Some said this, some others said this. 
Nicodemus might be in that crowd. Gamal, the Apostle Paul's mentor, might be in this crowd. Joseph of Arimathea may be in this crowd as well. And they're divided into two groups. One focusing on the Sabbath, convinced that the interpretation of the Sabbath is correct and therefore Jesus is in violation of the law. And it judges that a healing miracle itself is not an adequate test of authority. Well, Moses would agree with that. Moses warns against false prophets and those who would foretell by dreams and those sorts of things, insisting that even if the prediction comes true, they must nevertheless be put to death. We see in Deuteronomy 13, if by their teaching they're drawing people away from the Lord. So Moses would agree with them on that point. Have no choice. They have, and if that's the case, and that's what they believe in, this man is not from God. The other group, they, that's a pretty cool miracle. Find it hard to believe that Jesus could be a sinner. Only the power of God can heal a blind man like this. Jesus performed the miracle. It must be from the power of God. So surely that means he's not a sinner. He can work wonders like this. He may be from God. But both those arguments are really worthless. One, that he cannot be from God since he healed on the Sabbath. And the other, that the miracle is a good test. Because we know miracles aren't necessarily a good test. That one is from God. The in Exodus, we're going to deal with Moses. In Exodus, those, the Pharaoh's wise men could come up with the same miracles that Moses was performing. Their arguments are worthless. So we see again another testifying of who he is. Finally, they push him long enough and he says, then say he's a man called Jesus. He says he's a prophet. Division of religious groups prompts them to question the man who had been healed. Hmm. This shows us the difference in understanding and faith. It's important for us to understand, too. Understanding declares that Jesus performed this healing. But then even Satan would believe that, that Jesus performed this healing. Understanding acknowledges the fact. Faith concludes that the fact actually points to something. Faith is launched in this man's heart even as he acknowledges that Jesus is the one who performed the miracle, that he is a prophet. And eventually we see that only faith comes to its fullness when Jesus is acknowledged as Lord and Savior and worshipped. See that late in the chapter. There was a scribe who encountered Jesus in Mark chapter 12. 
he asks him questions. He asks, well, who's the greatest commandment? And Jesus has this conversation with him. And the man answers Jesus finally in the end of verse 34. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And I'm sure if Jesus had been here in this encounter between the Pharisees and the man he just healed, he would think the same thing too. You're not far from the kingdom of God. We get to see that. And then there's round two. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. Now, how do nominally religious parents react when their children become transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ? Even today, how does that happen? How do they react? There was someone who wrote of a story in Life magazine years ago. Parents commented concerning their daughter who, upon conversion to biblical Christianity, had been delivered from drug addiction. Astonishingly, they said that they would prefer that she revert to her unconverted state. It seemed that her more godly lifestyle made them feel uncomfortable. I was talking to somebody this week in our church whose adult child doesn't want his children to come to church with their grandmother because I assume they don't want God to be messing with their child and come home and make their lives uncomfortable. It's not just a modern problem. They just grilled this man. Now they're going to grill his parents. And you see, that may be the case with them. You see, when the ways of God conflict with the reasoning of man... Often the ways of God come under closer scrutiny than the ways of man. Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. There's only faith in God as he has revealed himself that resolves the seeming tension. Between man's reason and God's truth. And these leaders still, after all of this, would love to be convinced. Deep down, they'd love to be convinced that the healed man is not the right man. So they asked the parents to find out from them. The Jews did not believe they had been blind and received the sight until they called the parents of the man who had received the sight and asked them, Is this your son? Who you say was born blind? Yeah. He's our son. Two questions asked. Is this your son? And if he is, how does he now see? They're in a dilemma. If they refuse to answer either question, they're going to be in trouble. Or if they answered with, Responses that are contrary to what the rulers want, how they want them to answer, then they're also in trouble. That's a dilemma. So they answered the first question honestly. Is this your son? Yes, this is my son. This is our son. He was born blind. Well, then how does he see now? That's where they pass the buck. They didn't know how he was healed or who healed him. They used that 
old-fashioned tactic of passing the buck, getting out of that situation, suggesting after all, he's of age. You had to be 13 years of older or older to testify back in those days. So he was, he was old enough. And what's behind all of that? We'll close with this. What's behind all of that? The fear of man. The fear of people. We saw that at the Feast of Tabernacles, chapter 7, verse 13. Yet the fear, for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Why do you not witness every single day? Why do you not share the gospel every single day? Why aren't you bold in your witness? Why fear of man? That's why. We'll see it again in chapter 12. These people are seeking the honor of man. They didn't want to be excommunicated from the synagogue. We see that parenthetical note. Verse 22, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. That was their fear. And we don't know how John knew that because that was apparently a little private rule that the Jewish leaders had decided on themselves. It wasn't really public. But we know it may have, may have come out in testimony in Jesus' trial. We know John was the only disciple there. He went in with Peter, but then Peter left, and that's when Peter went out in the courtyard, you know, and, was, and, and denied Jesus. So John was the only one left. It could be that rule showed up then. So when John writes this, he sticks this note in here. Or it could be that they knew the rule. Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man brings a snare. They're trying to trap Jesus. The parents are trying to avoid the trap. All this, they're just simply stepping on traps as they go. What a wonderful truth. At least the parents have not bowed to the pressure of shamefully denying their son. At least they said, yes, he's our son. He was born blind. Yet there's not the slightest enthusiastic comment that he can see now. Even they're skeptical. Now, these parents obviously were poor, too, because their son had to beg. But not only did they seem to know that Jesus had performed the miracle, they, they refused to truthfully testify about this. For their own safety, to accept exclusion from the synagogue, they preferred to place their son quite possibly in greater jeopardy. It's costly to believe in Jesus. It's costly to testify to the truth of Jesus Christ. But for those who do not count the cost... There is amazing compensation in the end. We'll see that even at the end of this chapter. It cost. These neighbors, they, they, some tend to believe and some disbelieve. The Pharisees, some have some leaning toward believing what took place and the, some, some just 
deny it altogether. The parents stay on the middle ground. Why? Why? Because the truth of Jesus Christ brings division. And if you fall on the right side, it will cost. And it will cost you dearly. We see this progression going on in this man's life. So, he was asked this question, how are you healed? In verse 10, he answers to the neighbors. And in verse 15, he answers to the Pharisees. In verse 19, he answers to the uh, the parents answer the question. And then he's interrogated again. We'll see that next time. All this looked very official and very efficient. But it was a maneuver, nothing but a maneuver on the part of both the people and the leaders to get rid of the evidence. And they keep asking how. How this happened? How were you made blind? How? How is this? Nicodemus wanted to know how he could reenter his mother's womb and be born again. In John chapter 6, how can this man, talking about Jesus, give us his flesh to eat? Understanding the process, even if we could, is no guarantee that we've experienced a miracle. How is not the right question. The right question is who? And the who is Jesus Christ. And who is he? That's why the Pharisees are all up in arms. The very end of the previous chapter, chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Adam was, I am. The question is not how. The question is who. And he is God. And he can save your soul. You think about that. As we watch him last week and this week and coming up, we'll watch him save a man's soul. Let's pray. In a moment, we'll sing a song. <clears throat> I encourage you to, during this song, if you have questions about the message, if you have a need for somebody to pray with you. You just want to talk to somebody about your relationship with the Lord. You make your way to the back when we sing. Pastor Greg, others will be back there to receive you. <clears throat> and I encourage you to do that. It's an important time. You wouldn't want this moment to pass by without the least getting your questions answered and having somebody pray with you. Father, we pray that your word might pierce our hearts in our feeble explanations of your scripture, your great truths. We pray that you might overcome man's words and do a work in our life with your word. By the power of your spirit. Forgive us of our sins. Purify and cleanse us. Make us your people. For your glory.
In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.